Amen. Thank you very much, Martin, for praying for us. And thank you, Paddy, for leading us uh, through to this point as well. Uh, If you've got a Bible, do open up uh, back to Acts chapter 8. We're picking back up where we left off at about three weeks or so um, this evening. So it would be helpful to have that um, open in front of you as we work our way through those eight verses together. As we uh, look out at the world around us, I think there can be many things that can discourage us, can't there? Particularly to do with Christian things. Here at home uh, in Northern Ireland, there seems to be this rising tide, doesn't he, steadily and subtly of anti-Christian feeling. In particular, to do with Christian morality and Christian exclusivity, which we were obviously thinking about together this morning. And if we're being honest, it's hard to say that over the next 10, 15, 20 years or so, that kind of hostility, opposition, won't just continue to rise. And of course, Martin's already mentioned it. We know that there are many Christians out there around the world who from the perspective of security, safety in particular, are much worse off than we are either fearing for their own lives or fearing for the lives of their loved ones. Seeing this and knowing this, it is so easy, isn't it, to just become a little bit discouraged. Where is God in all of this? Is God really still at work? What hope is there for our land if if this is the trajectory that we're on? Well, it's into these exact kind of feelings of discouragement, I think, and these kind of questions that our passage this evening speaks really, really clearly and really helpfully, speaking hope and speaking joy. As we pick up back in Acts chapter 8 this evening, after Stephen's death, Luke is going to begin to help us to look at the other side of the coin, as it were. It's a fairly common phrase, isn't it? Uh, There are two sides to the same coin. Well, here, in the first eight verses of chapter 8, Luke is going to show us two sides of the same coin. Verses 1 to 3, that first side of the coin, showing us something of that discouraging perspective that we mentioned as we began there, showing us trials, difficulties, grief, suffering. And to be honest, if that was all that we were given in this section of Acts chapter 8, there would be real reason for discouragement this evening. But that isn't all we're given. Because then, powerfully and effectively, Luke goes on to show us in verses 4 to 8, the other side of the coin. The other things that came about as a result, even, of the suffering that these early Christians faced. And in showing us this other side of the coin, I hope that we're going to see tonight, in all that Luke shows us, there is real reason for encouragement, reason for joy. So we won't leave here this evening just going on, feeling a little bit down about the world around us. But instead, we can leave here and go on into the week rejoicing. Two sides to the same coin. That, I think, is our passage tonight in a nutshell. So let's get into this together now then. First of all, just plain and simple, let's see these two sides of the coin. 
And then after that, we're going to draw out, hopefully, four applications that will help us to, to rejoice in what we're seeing here this evening. So let's get into the passage and see the first side of the coin, that Christians find themselves scattered by evil. Read verses 1 to 3 along with me. And as we read these verses, begin to feel the weight of the evil in them. The grief, the suffering that these early Christians face, because it's very, very real. Stephen has just been killed, as we read about, at the end of chapter 7. And then we read these, verse, the, these words. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the first side of the coin that Luke presents to us in this passage. And it's pretty bleak, isn't it? Over the past few chapters, if you've been with us, we've seen the apostles, haven't we, being threatened many times and and beaten. And then, of course, last week we saw Stephen being killed. But these verses take this all up a a step or two, don't they? Just look at what they include again with me. Verse 1, first of all, a reminder that in that first sentence that Stephen has just been killed. But even more than that, there's people like Saul, soon to be Paul, who are approving of this kind of execution. They're almost delighting in it. And then the rest of verse 1 shows us the continued ramping up and widening of this persecution. Look with me again. Where before it was just the apostles who seemed to be under fire for their faith in Jesus, now it's the whole church that's facing persecution. So much so that they end up having to leave Jerusalem and end up scattered. Seemingly only the apostles remain. On a side note, we're not told here why the apostles remain. Maybe it's that they feel some kind of responsibility to remain in Jerusalem, no matter what that will cost. Maybe also being so well known at this point, perhaps it would have been harder for someone like Saul to persecute them. We don't know, we aren't told, but the general picture here is very clear. There is now great persecution. And then following on from that, as we've just said, there is this widespread displacement for almost all who are associated with Jesus Christ because they're forced out of Jerusalem. And verse 2 then reminds us that for some, this persecution would lead to death, as we're reminded it has for Stephen. And devout men lament the injustice. As I've just said, This is martyrdom. This is Stephen dying. His death, but his death will only be the first. We know from later on in Acts that Saul and others would condemn other believers to death as well as he breathes out threats and murders against them. And then verse 3 kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? Just look at the extent of Saul's persecution here. That phrase, ravaging The church is a picture of the brutal and sadistic kind of cruelty that Saul is bringing against God's people. 
And the mention of Saul going house to house is kind of terrifying, isn't it? Put yourself in that situation. You can imagine yourself, can't you, hiding in your house at the end of your street as you hear in the distance Saul and his companions marching steadily up the street, knocking down door after door after door until finally it's your door. As he comes in and drags you and the rest of your family off to prison. We read there, don't we, that even the women aren't spared imprisonment. Now, I'm not meaning to labor these verses this evening to try to get us down. I hope we're going to see, we're going to end up somewhere else. But I think we have to see here the reality of what is going on. The reality of the suffering as what seems to be a thriving, growing church in Jerusalem finds itself completely decimated. With most either displaced, imprisoned, and some probably even killed. God's people, his church, has been scattered by evil. And seeing this scene would discourage just about anyone looking on, wouldn't it? We talked at the start of of our discouragement as we look out at the attitudes around us towards Christianity. Well, here's another level of that, isn't it? Those same questions we asked at the beginning must have been going on in the minds of the apostles and these early disciples, these other early Christians, mustn't they? Where is God in all of this? Is he really still at work? What hope is there for our land and for God's kingdom to grow if this is the trajectory that we're on? And they're fair questions, aren't they? But into these question, questions, Luke now wants to show us the other side of the coin. One result of the persecution we see in these verses is this very negative picture. But here's the other side of the same coin, from verses 4 to 8, that though it was meant for evil, and of course real pain and distress is caused by all that goes on here, actually what happens here turns out to be a scattering that God uses for good. As the gospel continues to spread wider and wider, now well beyond the walls of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas and regions of Judea, and Samaria. Let's read now these much more encouraging words from verses 4 to 8 again. And as we do that, I hope you can begin to feel some of that kind of encouragement. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. For when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. If Saul, breathing out threats and murder, would have had his way, verse 3 would have been the end of things, wouldn't it? In fact, it would have been the end of the book of Acts. We could have shut it and moved on. The church, displaced, persecuted, imprisoned, well, they would have gradually petered out, and the name of Jesus Christ would have been assigned 
to a history book, only to be brought up again in the long line of people like Theodos and Judas, who remember we read about in chapter 5, who rose up and, and drew people to themselves only for it all to come to nothing. In fact, if you have a Bible with me, flick back a couple of pages. There's a fascinating parallel to be made here that I hope will encourage us. In chapter 5, verse 36, we read of this guy, Theodas. We read of him being killed, and what do we read then? We read that all who followed him were dispersed, with nothing then coming of it, his name forgotten. And then verse 37, if you look the next verse down, the same happens to Judas. At the end of the verse there, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Same word as our passage. And seemingly that was the end for Judas as well, and his uprising. But isn't this striking? Isn't this encouraging? Even though Jesus' followers here find themselves similarly scattered, this is not the end for Jesus, is it? Isn't that an encouraging thought? We don't see here Jesus' followers abandoning ship, gradually moving on with their lives to do other things. No, instead, what do we see in verse 4? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This scattering of his followers is not the end for Jesus. It is only just the beginning. His name, isn't it? Jesus' name is on the lips of all these early believers. They go out into these various areas. Rather than hiding and going into silent mode, realizing the dangers that following Christ could bring them, it seems that instead these disciples, they go into full-on gospel, preach the gospel mode, evangelize mode. In fact, that's the word that's used there in verse 4 for preach the word. Euangelizo, evangelize. The people go about announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ is being proclaimed. As we see with the specific example of Philip then in verse 5 that flows out of what's happening right across the region. Here we now see the specific Philip, verse 5, proclaiming Christ to all who would hear. That's what's happening. And the crowds respond, don't they? Paying careful attention to Philip, we read. As presumably, uh, we can imagine all these other disciples going out, people listening to them as well. And Philip, doesn't he? He continues to transform lives in the name of Jesus, inviting people to come to Jesus for forgiveness, refreshing, hope, and casting out these unclean spirits and healing the sick. This is quite the other side of the coin, isn't it, that we were just looking at? Quite the turnaround from verse 3. And the picture is completed and summarized, I think, in all of this in verse 8. As Philip speaks of Christ, heals in his name, so there was much joy in that city. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible corresponds, I think, to Joseph. When his brothers, do you remember, send this message to him in Genesis 50. Because they fear he might want to pay them back for the evil that they did to him. Now that his father is dead. 
And as part of his reply, Joseph then famously says these words. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Well, if you want a New Testament equivalent of those words, that story, I don't think you're going to get a much better one than these eight verses in Acts, are you? It was meant for evil by Saul and all the others who carried out this persecution, but God meant it for good. That his gospel would continue to go out, would continue to spread, now reaching out into Judea and Samaria, as Jesus had said to his disciples, and then on to the ends of the earth. What was the picture of despair, suffering? What was a discouraging picture in verse 3? Well, now it's been completely flipped. Flipped to a picture that shows, shows joy. The much joy that God would bring about in this particular city and presumably from what we see here in so many other cities as well. Discouragement to joy. All resulting from that same initial thing, this persecution that breaks out against God's people. So seeing this, what are we meant to make of it all tonight as we reflect on it? Well, first of all, above all, I hope and pray that even just right now, you can begin to feel some encouragement and joy from seeing these clear outlining of these two sides of the coin. Sure, from one side, it looks pretty bleak, and that is real, but we need to know that with God, there is always the other side. Sure, we get the privilege here of seeing in this passage, don't we, the exact working out of that other side. We don't always see that in the here and now, but we can be sure that one day we will see everything that is going on right now in the world around us in the same way we're able to look back at this persecution that's described here and know that God has been at work. So what I want to do from here on out then is, is move us towards four applications, four applications that we can take home from this passage. And hopefully each of these will reflect that move from discouragement and even despair towards joy that we see here in this passage. So let's get into the, the four applications. And first of all, uh, let's see that this passage, as much of Acts has up to this point as well, helps us and pushes us to know and rejoice in the fact that God's purposes can't be and won't be thwarted. The Jewish leader Gamaliel, back in chapter 5 again, verse 39, he's already told us this truth, hasn't he? Do you remember he declared that if something is of God, well, the Jewish leaders won't be able to overthrow it. We saw that truth mapped out and pictured for us again and again in chapter 5, and here I think we see it even more clearly. What could only, by any worldly sense, be considered a terrible thing, the persecution of the early church, well, it actually turns out to be used by God as his means of spreading the gospel wider and wider and wider. 
This wouldn't have been how we would have imagined Jesus' command. Remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when we were looking at it? We wouldn't have imagined this is how this command would have worked itself out. This is how the disciples would have ended up witnessing in Judea and Samaria. But this is how God had planned it. Saul, here in these verses, is pictured as a very powerful man, isn't he? He's ravaging the church, and seemingly he will not stop until the church is destroyed. Yet this this passage shows us, doesn't it, that it turns out Saul has no power or authority. As God continues to grant his followers boldness to go on speaking about Jesus, even in the face of suffering and threat. In fact, ironically, we see God actually using Saul in what he is doing to spread the gospel. Isn't that amazing? And of course, we're going to see in a few weeks that God is not finished with Saul, as he will continue to use him in this cause, right to his dying day. Even the mighty Saul, well, he's nothing compared to God and his plans. In seeing all of this, I hope you can rejoice with me in this incredible truth. God's purposes will not ever be thwarted. Of course, that doesn't mean that evil won't happen in the world around us, that we won't find ourselves suffering like the Christians do here, even potentially fearing for our lives at some point because of our faith in Jesus. But it does mean this. We can have confidence that God is above it all and that he will continue to work out his purposes as he builds his church and spreads his gospel right to the ends of the earth. That's what God is doing. As we look out at the world around us today, even here in Northern Ireland, there are many powerful, influential people and groups, aren't there, that we can see who seem to be pulling against Christianity, against God's will, against God's purposes. But we need to see in this passage reason to take heart. Reason to rejoice. Even if we can't see it now as clearly as we do in this passage, the same holds true. God is and will continue his work. And there is genuinely nothing that those groups, that those people can do to stop it. In fact, from this passage, maybe without them even knowing it, they're working to serve God's purposes in spreading the gospel. Isn't that an amazing thought? We need to remember this when the world around us and all that we see in it would discourage us. Nothing and no one will stand against God and his purposes. Of course, that doesn't mean we rejoice when we see hard things, when we see God's word and God dishonored. We continue to lament those things. But this does mean we can rejoice in the one who also sees those very same things and who will not see any single one of them thwart his will and his plan to spread joy right to the ends of the earth. So that's the first thing. I think the the overriding thing, I think we take away from this this passage this evening, take heart that God's purposes will not be thwarted. And I hope that remembering that can spark 
joy in our lives as we head on into the week. Uh, Here then is a second thing. Second thing for us to take away, to know and rejoice in that flows out of our passage. And this is a bit more specific. And that is that God has scattered you to where you are for a purpose. This flows out of our first application, I think, and I hope is another reason to lift us up from discouragement to joy. For these early Christians, as they escaped from, uh, fled from Jerusalem, they must have been wondering, mustn't they, what is going on here? There was so much blessing. We've seen that, haven't we, in Jerusalem and the church there. As they gathered around the apostles' teaching, as they broke bread in each other's houses, as they prayed together, as they shared with and encouraged those most in need. But suddenly, it's brought to an end. All of that stopped. Likely now in much smaller groups and heading to places that they've possibly never even been to before, these early disciples could have had every reason to be discouraged, couldn't they? But we see that God had a clear purpose for them. As they did go and settle in these surrounding areas to Jerusalem, and we see that they themselves were ready to play the parts in that purpose. Look at verse 4 again. We don't read there, do we, that those scattered, well, they went about feeling a bit down, wondering what was going on. No, we read that those scattered went about preaching the word. Realizing that if the news of Jesus was such good news for themselves, such life-transforming news for themselves, they knew that that same news, well, that needed to be spread wherever they went. And so that's exactly what they do. Now, in applying this to us today, I know that almost all of us are in quite a different situation to these early believers, but I think the same principle can apply to us as well. Just as God put these early Christians in these different places around Judea and Samaria for a reason, for a purpose, so he's done that for us today as well. Jesus' command, first given to the apostles, then handed down to these disciples to be his witnesses right to the end of the earth, well, that's also been passed on to us today. And this means that wherever God has scattered you, right now you have a purpose in being there. Now, maybe you're sitting out there and you're thinking, but Simon, I've grown up and lived in Belfast or, or the surrounding areas, all of my life. Where have I been scattered? But what about how God has, even as you've done that, scattered you across this city? Look around this evening and we see so many different places of work that God has scattered us to. So many different neighborhoods that we all live in. So many different family, and friends that we all have. It would be amazing, wouldn't it, to map out over the course of this week all the different places that we are going to be scattered. God hasn't given us all the same jobs, the same gifts, the same circumstances for a reason. And that is so that we will go out, so that we will scatter. Each of us going to the place where God has put us 
And we go there with a purpose, to preach the word. That is, pure and simple, to speak to people about the Lord Jesus. As you think about this, just for a moment, stop and think about where you are. Where are the different places that God has scattered you that you're going to end up this week? As you go to those locations, those places, as you see those people that God will put around you, know that God has put you there for a purpose. Now, I know for some of us, we could be desperately longing for something in our circumstances, in where we've been scattered, to change. Our job, our neighborhood, whatever it is. Just as presumably, these Christians would have longed for things to be a bit different. And that isn't wrong, that we feel that. But even there, even as you wait, keep shining for Jesus. He will not waste your witness wherever he has put you this week. It's good, isn't it, that tomorrow morning we're not all just going to be gathering here in our little holy huddle at 9 a.m. God's given us things to do this week, places to go to, people to meet, because he has purposes for us to spread the gospel, to work and live to his praise and glory, and then to speak to others about Jesus. Let's go on this week and take joy and encouragement in doing that. Right, that's our first two applications. Here's the third that I'd like us to take away with us as we go on this evening. And that is to know and rejoice that the gospel is for all. This, in reality, is a pretty significant moment in the book of Acts. We're going to come on to this next week a little bit more as well. But we see here, for the first time, the gospel beginning to go out to people beyond Jerusalem. And most significant in that is that the gospel is now going out to people who are not Jews. Look with me again to verse 2. We see the people there being scattered now throughout Judea and even into Samaria. And then in verse 5, we see Philip proclaiming Christ in the city of Samaria, or some translations, a city, at least a major city in that region. And the significance of this is this. Those living in Samaria, the Samaritans, well, they would have been considered heretical outsiders to the devout Jews of the time. There was a long-standing and deep hostility towards the Samaritans. Well, they too awaited the promised uh, one that Moses promised would come in Deuteronomy 18. They had set up their own temple at Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. And they only held to the teaching of the first five books of the Old Testament, the rest of it cast aside. And all of this means that this evangelizing that we see here in the second half of this passage, this proclaiming of the same gospel of Jesus Christ to these Samaritans is a really, really big deal. It is the first sign, significant sign in the book of Acts of just how far reaching this good news is and is going to get to. This good news will ultimately break down every human boundary, whether it's geographical cultural or anything else by pointing each and every single person to the person and work of Jesus. And of course, this is good news for us to rejoice in this evening because most of us as Gentiles would have been considered outsiders. 
just like these Samaritans, surely the gospel wouldn't go out to them. And yet our passage tonight is the first sign that it did. And it has continued to, hasn't it, ever since. And notice the other thing here. What is it that Philip is proclaiming in verse 5? Is it some culturally adapted message to take into account the differences between the Samaritans and the Jews? No, he's simply doing this. He's proclaiming to them the Christ. This, I think, should give us real reason for encouragement and and rejoicing this evening. God, through Christ, has made a way for us to come to him. And having come to him through Christ, we now don't need to look to uh, to come up with fancy ways to draw other people to God as well. No, we just need to hold out the same Christ who's been held out to us, to others. Showing those around us that this Jesus really does meet all of their deepest longings and needs. As we've begun to be thinking about in the, in the morning series in Galatians, Christ is enough. And there is no other gospel apart from him and him alone. He gives us all that we need. Let's praise God for that good news that is for every single one of us this evening. Every single one of us, no matter what our background is, no matter where we're from, no matter our heritage, we can enjoy that good news of Christ for ourselves. And then the good news is we can go out and share that. Share that good news with others, whatever their background, whatever their heritage. Christ is enough. And this then leads us on to the fourth application that I want us to leave, to leave us with this evening. And that is that we would know and rejoice in the fact that the gospel is a source of great joy. I just love verse 8's summary. Summarize the complete transformation we see in this passage. From those verses 1 to 3 through to verses 4 to 8. Luke simply concludes with this. So there was much joy in that city. Would have been amazing to see it, wouldn't it? And if that isn't a great summary of what the gospel does in people's lives, I don't know what is. It brings joy. As the Samaritans witness, like we've seen before in Acts, the transforming, healing power of Jesus, his name, his authoritative power to drive out demons in unclean spirits even. So they also, in verse 6, pay careful attention to what Philip is telling them. And he's telling them about Jesus. And where does that leave them? It leaves them rejoicing. Of course it does. This is good news. Do you remember what the angel said to the shepherds back in in Luke's first book? In his gospel, in Luke chapter 2, verse 10? It's that famous Christmas passage, isn't it? This coming of Jesus into the world, it would be good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And here we're we're seeing the beginning of that being fulfilled, aren't we? 
and the full magnitude of what is going on here beginning to be understood. Wow, this joy really will be for all people. Wow, this joy really will be for all people. Sometimes as we look out at the world and do feel discouraged, rightly, in many ways, by all that we see, I think this is a really helpful passage. This is a really helpful reminder for us, an antidote, as it were, to that kind of discouragement. God has given us news to share with this often bleak world that genuinely, if they will receive it, will bring them joy. That is what we are holding out. Joy to people. Joy that will transform their lives. We don't just believe that we bear witness to Jesus because what we bear witness to him about is true. Yes, we do believe that, but we also believe that we bear witness to Jesus because what we know about him is good. He brings joy. Jesus transforms lives from purposeless to purposeful. Jesus transforms lives from hopeless to hopeful. Jesus transforms lives from constantly chasing after the next worldly pleasure, never finding joy in any lasting way, to finding a real, deep, daily joy and an eternal joy that can never be taken away from us. That's what the forgiveness, the refreshing, the hope found in Christ has done in our lives if we're Christians here this evening. And this is what is being held out to anyone and to everyone here this evening who will also come to Jesus. What's being held out? Well, it's summed up in that word in verse 8. Joy. As we go out from here into the rest of our weeks, let's First of all, take time, even this evening as we, as we head home, to remember that that is what we've been given. To remember the joy and hope that we have in Christ. We sang about some of that so powerfully earlier. And then let's pray. Pray for opportunities that as we go out, we would be able to share that joy that we've received with those that God has scattered us to be amongst this week. And as we do that, this was to be amazing prayer, wouldn't it? That as we do that, and as Christians right across our city do that, wouldn't it be a great prayer to pray that verse 8 would be true in our city, our city of Belfast? So there was much joy in that city because of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray for that together as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage and how it's reminding us of that joy, of that joy that we can have because of him. Lord, we know that there are people out there in the world around us who would love to put an end to your work, to put an end to the church. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of this passage that we see that you And your plans will never be thwarted. 
even by the most powerful, the most uh, feared of people around us. Lord, thank you that you are greater and that you will achieve your purposes. Lord, please would you help us as we go out of here into this week, Lord, that you would, you would use us as the scattered people, your scattered people, to go and speak joy and hope and peace and life to those who you put around us. Lord, please, would this city of Belfast, over the years ahead, be a city where much joy is found because of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, close by singing a song full of joy at what God has done for us. You can imagine, can't you, these Samaritans, this is the first time they've ever heard of Jesus. This is the first time they ever hear of grace. You can imagine them responding and singing the kind of song we're going to sing this evening, singing it with joy. And we can sing that with joy this evening because that same grace that was for them then is for us today too. Let's stand and rejoice together in the grace of our God to us.
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.